You're going to need one of these books this morning, so I want to encourage you, grab a Bible, make sure you've got one, whether it's on your phone, your iPad, or a paper version of the Bible wrapped in leather, whatever the case is, you're going to need it. Open to the Gospel of John, fourth book in the New Testament, John chapter 1, that's where we're going to be today. Uh, I'm loving this sermon series which is important because, uh, you know, it doesn't really matter if you're loving it. It matters if I'm loving it because I'm the one who gets to choose what we preach on. So that's the deal around here. But I'm loving it because we're getting this picture of Jesus. And I know what's coming in the next few weeks. We're going to be just gathering the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And we're going to be looking at Jesus from a bunch of different angles and learning what we can about who he is and who he wants to be through us. Well, last week we were introduced to Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. And if you remember, Mark is very thrifty with his words, right? He doesn't mince words. He jumps right in and he is into it right from the beginning. Uh, there's no uh, Christmas story, no uh, pregnant virgins. There's no wise men bringing gifts. There's there's no Jesus at 12, year old, 12 years old getting lost in the city and separated from his parents. None of that. Mark just jumps right in with a reference to Isaiah and then some comments about uh, Jesus' baptism, his temptation, and his ministry begins. At least Matthew and Luke give us the ancestry. They give us the Christmas story. It's two or three chapters before we really get into the day-to-day -day ministry and life of the adult Jesus. So that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But John is different than all of the other Gospels. John approaches it in a completely different way. He begins with a picture of Jesus that is primarily theological. He, he comes at it from a totally different angle. He says, I want you to know who Jesus is. I want you to get an understanding of the immensity of who he is. I want you to be standing in awe with your jaw hanging open going, wow, I can't believe God came to earth and became human for us. And so he's at the very beginning of his gospel. He's talking about Jesus theologically, who he is. Um, his eternality, that is to say that he is eternally God, that he's responsible for the creation of all things. He gives us this amazing picture. And as you go through John, John emphasizes the I am statements of Jesus, right? Those statements where Jesus uses the name of God to describe himself, gets himself in trouble with all the Pharisees and scribes. But he's making the point, I am God, I am God, I am God. In John's gospel, he doesn't really refer to miracles of Jesus. He tells a story of those miracles, but he doesn't call them miracles. He calls them signs. He says this was a sign that Jesus performed. What are these signs all pointing to? They're pointing to the immensity of who Jesus is. This Jesus is God in the bod. That's how John is presenting him to us. And so we're getting that sense as we go into the gospel of John, Jesus's role in creation. He wants us to be blown away by who this Jesus is. And that's what we're going to get in John chapter 1 today. When I was a kid, uh, I, I grew up just a few miles from Disneyland. And, and that was back in the olden days when there was only one Disneyland in the world. 
Now there's, you know, a Disneyland in Florida, there's a Disneyland in Beijing, and there's a Disneyland in, I don't know, Barstow. There's Disneyland all over the place, but we used to have the only Disneyland. If you're old like me and you grew up in Southern California, you will remember this. You got in for just a couple of bucks and then you bought a book of tickets, right? This is where we get the phrase e-ticket ride for those of you who are young and don't know where that comes from. An e-ticket was the ride for like the Matterhorn, which was the coolest ride at Disneyland at that time. There was really just a few rides as I look back. But, but I used to go to Disneyland as a child, and one of the things that I look forward to the most that I loved was this ride called the Jungle Cruise. And it was great because it was only a sea ticket ride. So those tickets were cheaper. You could get a lot of sea tickets. And I would ride the Jungle Cruise. And I liked seeing the animals and the, and the plants and all the jungle stuff and all of that. But the reason I went on the Jungle Cruise, this will shock you. This will surprise you. Um, I like stupid jokes. I know that's, that's amazing to you. You would have never imagined that. But the truth is, those Jungle Cruise captains, I loved those guys. And I would ride and just listen to their jokes, right? Remember, they, they take you where the waterfall is and they go, and now if you look to your right, you'll see Schweitzer Falls, named for the famous Dr. Albert Falls. And I would laugh. And, and over here, you'll see some elephants, right? And, and you probably think that that's water that they're blowing out of their trunks, but it's snot. And I would laugh. I thought these were the greatest jokes I'd ever heard. In fact, I should write some of these down and use them in my sermons. They'd probably be an improvement. I know what you're saying. But you know what? After you've ridden that ride a few times and you've been with every captain and you've heard every joke, that ride gets boring. That ride gets like hard to stay awake through. It's just mundane. It's just the same old, same old. You're used to it. You've been there. You've done that. You've heard it all before. And it kind of loses its allure. We run the same risk as Christians. The longer we walk with God, the more that we read our Bibles, the longer we've been hearing sermons preached on the same topics over and over throughout the years, we can get to the place where it's just kind of old hat to us. We're just used to it. We're comfortable with it. It doesn't amaze us anymore. Wow, Jesus goes to the tomb of Lazarus and he says, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus just gets out and they strip him of his mummy wrappings and he's alive. And we, oh, yeah, I read that one before. Or, or we see Jesus casting a demon out of this guy and the demons, there's so many demons in this guy that they infest a group of pigs and a whole herd of swine runs off the cliff. And we go, oh, yeah, I heard that one before. We run the risk, Christians, of losing our awe when we think about Jesus. And one of the goals of this sermon series is to make sure that doesn't happen to us. So John is committed in his gospel account to making sure that we don't lose our sense of awe. Well, by now, hopefully you have found John chapter 1. I want to have you uh, look along with me as I read. Now, uh, bear with me. We're going to get the whole context here. We're going to start in John 1, 1, and we're going to read through verse 18, okay? John 1, 1 through 18. Here we go. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Okay, are you following this? He's introducing us to Jesus, and the name he's using for Jesus is the Logos, the Greek word Logos, from which we get our, our uh, English word logic. It's from which we get our English word word. The idea is that Jesus is the reason, the logic, the word of God. And he, not it, he, Jesus, is the creator of all things. And apart from him, nothing has been created. And he comes to be the light of the world. Verse 6, there came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And John testified about him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. He has explained him. Or he has revealed him. Or perhaps maybe the, the best translation of that word would be, he has unveiled him. We see in Jesus God himself unveiled. But there's something in this passage, this gigantic theological treatment that I want to focus on today because it has always been the most captivating part of this passage to me. And if you've been a part of this church for any length of time, you have heard me talk about this more than once. But it says in verse 14 that this Jesus, the word who became flesh, that he is full of grace and truth. And if you're not careful, you just read right past that. Yeah, and the word became flesh and he dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. And we just keep reading. But man, I want you to stop. I want you to highlight, underline, put a star next to full of grace and truth. Because that makes Jesus unlike anyone you have ever known. Jesus is not 50-50. He's not grace sometimes and truth sometimes. He is full of grace and full of truth. You don't know anyone else like that. I've known some people who seem to be devoid of grace. <laughs> I've known some people who seem to be completely separated from truth. But Jesus is full of grace and full of truth. Even among Christians, most of us lean heavily to the grace side or we lean heavily to the truth side. 
Most of us don't have much balance in our lives that way. In my years of ministry, I've really, I've seen this pendulum swing in my own life. When I was first getting involved in ministry, you know, I, I got saved when I was 14. I started preaching when I was 15. And so I was a very young Christian. I was a very young believer when I started proclaiming the word. And, and I'm going to be honest with you and tell you that this Bible was mostly a mystery to me at that time. You know, the stuff that I preached on those days was just like either, you know, Daniel in the lion's den or David and Goliath or some kind of interesting story that I could wow the teenagers with. And that was kind of what I focused on because the truth is I didn't really know much doctrine. I didn't really know much about truth. But man, did I love the grace of God. And so I was constantly talking about the grace of God, extending that grace, extending that grace, just bathing in that grace in my own life because I knew what I had been saved out of. But, but, but for me at that time, my Bible was just kind of a devotional aid, and I never really dug deeply into truth. But as it became clear that God had gifted me and called me to preach, I was running out of things to preach about that I understood. And, and I started listening to preachers who were heavy on the truth side. I started reading books by, by people like, you know, A.W. Pink and A.W. Tozer and... and Martin Lloyd-Jones and these great thinkers of the past, I started reading, you know, the, the, the old writers, the reformers, people like Calvin and Luther and those guys, and I just started getting captivated with truth. I started making a point of listening to preachers on the radio, you know, people like uh, J.I. Packer and John Piper and John MacArthur, people like this who emphasized truth, who stood behind a giant pulpit with a big Bible in their hand and who said the truth whether you liked it or not. And that started to minister to me and I started to fall in love with the Bible and I started to teach that way and my teaching, my preaching life became very, very much like getting whacked over the head with a giant Bible. In fact, I'll never forget there was a, a young couple that had been coming to our church. I, I developed a close friendship with the husband. Um, and after a while, they just stopped coming. But because I was friends with the husband, I got together with him and I could ask him directly and say, hey, what's going on? Why did you guys quit coming? And he said, you want the truth? I said, of course. He said, well, you know, my wife is a pretty young Christian. And when we come and hear you preach, everything you say we agree with but at the end of the service, we limp out of there. And my wife is depressed every Sunday afternoon because of the way you're preaching. And I thought, well, your wife needs to get her act together. <laughs> then I realized, well, you know what? Maybe I need to get my act together. And I started to realize that Jesus is full of grace without compromising truth. And he's full of truth without compromising grace. If you have an encounter with Jesus, it's an encounter with grace and truth. And I wanted that to be true of me as well. And so I'm still working on this. I'm still trying to figure out how can I preach the truth of God's word faithfully in a way that brings grace into the life of hearers. How can I do my relationships that way? How can I live my life that way? Jesus full of grace, full of truth. 
Now, let's kind of define terms. You, you're pretty familiar with the term truth. You know that truth means that which is in keeping with reality. That's truth. But let's think about grace for a second. The word grace that is used here in John chapter 1 and many, many times throughout the New Testament, this word grace is the Greek word charis. And, and it, it's commonly translated in many different ways in your New Testament. But, but it means a gift. It means a good thing that is given to you. It means a blessing. It refers to what the theologians call unmerited favor, the unmerited favor of God. It's a broad word. We tend to think of it uh, in terms of salvation. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 tell us that we are saved by grace through faith and that not of ourselves. And so we think grace is the, is the activation of our salvation, which is true. But this word has a much broader meaning than that. It has a much broader application than that. Grace is what a mother does when she tends to the need of her infant even though all an infant does is take and take and take and take and never give. Grace is what a policeman does when he pulls you over because you're speeding, but you explain to him that your wife is in labor at the hospital and you're trying to get there, and he says, not only am I not going to write you a ticket, but I'll give you an escort. Follow me. Grace is what a true friend does when you have been an absolute jerk and he forgives you anyway and doesn't hold it against you and treats you with love and kindness. Grace is what God did when he accepted the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf because you're a sinner and I'm a sinner and the only way for us to be saved is by grace through the sacrifice of Jesus. It's what Jesus did when he saw the funeral procession and he heard that this is a, a young man who has died leaving his mother a widow and all alone and she has no one to take care of her. And feeling compassion, he went, stopped the funeral procession, put his hand on the casket and told the boy to rise and brought him back to life and gave him back to his mother. That is grace. Or when he went out of his way, to visit an immoral woman by the side of a well so he could tell her that he forgives her, he loves her, and he has an incredible plan for her life. Or when he called Zacchaeus the thief to come out of the tree and be his friend. Or when he cast a demon out of a man who tried to attack him in a graveyard. Or when he reached out and rescued a sinking Peter who was trying his best to just walk on water and to keep his eyes on Jesus, but the storm distracted him and he began to sink because of the weakness of his faith. And Jesus, looking upon him, lifted him out of the water. It's what the former slave trader John Newton wrote about and what the church has been singing about for hundreds of years. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And John says, that there's not just one helping of grace for us, but that it keeps coming and coming and coming. Look again at verse 16. For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. 
And, and that phrase, grace upon grace, it refers to a never-ending uh, pouring out of grace. The best way I can describe this is if you've ever seen video or even been there to go to Niagara Falls and you'd see the millions of gallons of water that are coming over the edge and the falls just pours and pours and pours and it does not stop. That is a small picture of what the grace of God is like in our lives. It keeps coming and coming and coming, grace upon grace. Jesus is full of grace, but he's also full of truth. And John illustrates the fullness of grace and truth in Jesus' life right away in chapter 2. So just turn a page, get to chapter 2 of the book of John, the gospel of John, chapter 2, verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Which, by the way, if I could just say, that's a great piece of advice. Whatever Jesus says to you, do it. Now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. So they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. When the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine and did not know where to come from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter called the bridegroom. And he said to him, every man serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poorer wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of his signs, Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. See, we think of the word grace and we think in terms of salvation, it's Jesus dying on the cross. But Jesus' grace, it goes beyond that. It's not just that. In fact, this whole story that we just read in chapter 2 is a picture of grace. Jesus is just a guest at a wedding. His mother comes to him with a problem and he responds by saying, you know, I wasn't really planning on sort of outing myself as a son of God at this wedding. But she just presents the problem to him, leaves it in his hands, and he decides to pour out grace. It's an act of grace that he serves these people. It's an act of grace that, that he protects the bridegroom and his family from the embarrassment of what they're dealing with, with all of their guests that are there. It's just an act of grace. And don't let it be lost on you that he turns water into what? Wine. The symbol that later becomes the symbol of his blood, which is shed for us as an act of grace. Jesus pours out grace. But keep reading, because this whole story is not about grace. Chapter, verse 13, the Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And uh, he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves, and money changers seated at their tables. And he made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. He, he 
he goes into the temple and he sees all of this stuff happening where people are being ripped off, people are being taken advantage of. God's uh, standard of worship is being made a mockery of. And there in what he calls his father's house, the temple, he makes a statement of truth. He says, this is my father's house. I am not willing to just sit back and weakly let you do what you're going to do. This picture of Jesus is so different than the picture we just saw of Jesus at the wedding. Jesus at the wedding exhibiting grace in an amazing way. Jesus at the temple emptying the place out, turning over the tables and telling people what they need to hear, whether they like it or not. And by the way, they didn't like it. Grace and truth. Jesus never compromised one for the other, but he was full of both. Maybe my favorite illustration of this in the Gospel of John is over in chapter 8. If you'll skip over to chapter 8 with me. John chapter 8. Let's just begin reading here in verse 1, a very familiar story. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again into the temple. So same place where he was just clearing out the uh, money changers. Now he comes into the temple and all the people were coming to him and he sat down and began to teach them. So there's a big crowd. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery and having set her in the center of the court, they said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What then do you say? They were saying this, testing him, so that they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground. But when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. When they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones. And he was left alone. And the woman where she was in the center of the court, straightening up, Jesus said to her, woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go from now on. Sin no more. This is an unbelievable picture of grace and truth. Do you, do you see the grace there? You see, according to the Mosaic law, those men had every right to cast those stones at her. But Jesus uh, clarifies the spirit of the teaching of Moses when he says, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. You see, it's the law of love that you would love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself that supersedes all of the law. Now there is one person there among the whole crowd who has every right to cast a stone at her because he is without sin and that person is Jesus. But these priests and scribes and Pharisees one by one begin to drop their stones and walk away ashamed of themselves because they know that they too are in need of grace. And Jesus looks upon the woman and says, neither do I condemn you. It's grace. He had the right to condemn her. He had the right to punish her. But executing punishment upon people he loves 
is not the reason that he came. He came so that he doesn't have to execute punishment upon people that he loves. And Jesus shows this amazing, amazing grace in his statement to the woman, neither do I condemn you. But that's not his last statement, is it? Now, go and sin no more. Grace, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more, truth. You see, he's not giving her a free pass. He's not saying that sin doesn't matter. He knows how much sin matters. It's going to cost him his life on the cross. Nobody knows better than Jesus how much sin matters. Her sin was real. Her sin was going to require punishment, but Jesus was willing to take that punishment. He does not ignore her sin. He loves her enough to tell her the truth. If you keep living this way, you will keep being miserable. The, the ladder that you're climbing up is leaning against the wrong wall, and when you get to the top, you are going to be dismayed. Please, please, my dear sister, go and sin no more. Full of grace and full of truth. Like two wings on a bird. There's a grace wing and a truth wing. And it takes both of them to fly. Oh, how I pray that God's church can learn to exhibit that kind of grace and truth in our own lives and in our own witness. Because all truth and no grace crushes the spirit of people. It's like beating them over the head with your Bible. But all grace and no truth leaves people lost without a moral compass and unaware that they need a Savior. Jesus always spoke the truth. He didn't shy away from confrontation. He didn't back off from hard sayings. And yet... Non-religious people love to hang out with the guy. If you were to ask uh, the average person that you know who doesn't know Jesus, somebody who doesn't go to church, somebody who's not religious at all, and you were to ask them, hey, would you rather hang out with Christians or hang out with non-Christians? They would probably think you're joking. What do you, what do you think? Of course I'd rather hang out with non-Christians. That kind of thinking is exemplified. This shows you my age. It's exemplified in the famous Billy Joel song, Only the Good Die Young, where, where he says, I'd rather laugh with the sinners than die with the saints. The sinners are much more fun. See, that's the thinking of so much of our society today. Today, those outside the church wonder, why are Christians so judgmental? Why are Christians so narrow-minded? Why are Christians so hateful? And admittedly, not all of that criticism is earned, but some of it is. Some of it is. All truth and no grace takes away the allure of a relationship with Jesus. Romans chapter 2 verse 4 says, God's kindness leads people to repentance. It's his kindness, not his severity. Some of us need to be infused with the kindness and the grace of God in our own lives. But it's just as dangerous to forego truth for the sake of grace. Without the cold, hard truth about God and about ourselves, we will be forever lost and bound for hell. 
That's a big deal, and that's the truth. Where is the grace in that? Where is the grace in looking at someone who is completely lost in their sin and being unwilling to tell them the truth about that? It's not loving to refuse to tell someone the truth about their need for Jesus. It's selfish. It's mean. It's hateful. We need to embrace the truth. And in love, we followers of Christ need to speak the truth. The truth is that we're all sinners in need of a Savior, guilty before a holy God. The truth is that all roads do not lead to heaven. The truth is that it does matter what you believe and who you follow. The truth is that there's no such thing as your truth and my truth. There's the truth, and the truth has a name, and his name is Jesus. The truth is that apart from Christ, we're all without hope. And the truth is that his grace is enough. His grace is enough. By grace, God sent his only begotten son. By grace, Jesus lived a sinless life and then gave himself up on the cross for us. By grace, you can have abundant life and eternal life with him. So, so you say, you know, you want to follow Christ? You say you want to be like Christ? You say you want to walk with Christ? Well, you better start growing in grace and truth. Imagine how different the world would be if those of us who claim to follow Christ would be full of grace and full of truth. No arrogance. No judgmentalism, no pretense, no selfish cowardice and backing away from sharing the truth. Just grace and truth. We're the light of the world. It's our job to reflect Christ. So let me give you some application as we wrap up here. Because most of us have a pretty good idea whether we're a grace person or whether we're a truth person. And if you're not so sure, just ask someone who knows you well. They'll know. <laughs> Ask your spouse, ask your kids, ask your best friend. They'll know. So I have an application for both groups, the grace people and the truth person. If you're a person who needs to add more grace to the recipe of your life, I challenge you to ask God every morning this week to help you find a way to somehow give the gift of grace to somebody Every single day this week, ask him in the morning, Lord, show me, give me your eyes, give me your thoughts, show me where I can dispense grace. Find a way to give a gift, find a way to do something sacrificial, find a way to be loving, find a way to go out of your way for the sake of somebody else. Make grace a discipline in your life. But if you're a person who needs to mix in a little more truth, I encourage you to begin with yourself. Set aside at least 15 minutes a day every day this week. At least 15 minutes a day for you to be in your Bible soaking up the truth of God's word. Don't just read it. Think about it. Meditate on it. Study it. Get it into your heart and ask God to show you, Lord, how can I apply this in my life today? And start living by the truth and applying it in your life. The word became flesh, full of grace and truth. And he revealed the heart of God to us.
And now we, his followers, stand in his place. Let's follow in his footsteps and reveal the heart of God to everyone with whom we come into contact. And that is how you join God in changing the world, full of grace, full of truth. Let's pray. God, we just want to confess that it is you you alone who are full of grace and truth, that, that we only exist because of your amazing grace. We only have a chance to have a relationship with you because of your amazing grace. And your truth has been shared with us in your word. So help us, Father, to walk in that grace in our relationship with others. Help us to live in that truth as we interact with others. May people see us being full of grace and truth and be drawn to the one who is truly full of grace and truth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.